Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. And this will be one in a series of netcasts that we're doing with impressive visitors who come to the, the Rudd Center and discuss their work with our staff. Uh, today's um, guest is Cole Caston, and before I in, uh, introduce her more formally, I'd like to make note that you can visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org to hear this podcast, of course, because you're listening, but uh, many others that we've done in the past. I'm delighted to introduce Cole Caston to you today. She's a writer, an actress, and a producer. She has produced documentaries for television, for A&E, for Court TV, for HBO, and currently she's a producer for ABC News in New York City and works with Good Morning America. She's a graduate of Northwestern University and the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and is a widely talented uh, individual that uh, is involved in the arts as well as uh, the news. So here we're, t we're going to talk about science and journalism and how the two things come together, which they do almost every day in the news. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad you have, have you here. So let's start off with the following. Could you give us just a thumbnail sketch of how a story gets on the air? You described that today at the Rudd Center, and I know it's an interesting, complicated process where the producer is balancing any number of inputs at the same time, but you think in the morning some news hits and then you're there on the news in a short period of time and you don't have much time to produce these. How do you do it and what are the steps? Well, the example I used in my talk at the Rudd Center, which I'll use here, though more condensed, is a story of uh, the FDA approving the new drug Ally under the market name Ally. When we decide to do that story, because it's going to be approved the next day and hit store shelves closely shortly after, um, we immediately sort of have to find a creative way, though still accurate and fair, to tell that story. And by creative, I mean one aspect of the story was they were doing a massive viral ad campaign. We didn't really know what the ad was for. It turned out to be for this drug. It was all over major cities. By filming that and talking to people around those campaigns, what do you think this is, that might be another aspect to sort of flush out this story and make it a little more engaging. We first off, uh, as a producer, I have to become as much of an expert as I can in, in three hours on the history of this drug. Uh, was it a prescription drug? Is it in Europe? Is there any controversy around it? Who's for it? Who's against it? What are the side effects? How does it work? And really sort of understand all of that as much as I can, digesting quite a bit of information before I actually seek out people to interview. Now, obviously, we would talk to the drug company that is manufacturing the drug to say what the drug is promising, how significant is this. We already sort of know what they're going to say because we've seen the ads. My next task is to try to find someone who can give us a survey, a scientific, academic, not connected to a drug company, no vested monetary or otherwise interest in the drug, who can sort of show us the landscape of the diet drug industry. What does this mean? Is this drug as significant as people are saying? Are there side effects that we should really know about? What does all of this mean? Sort of sort through all that in this particular story that was, of course, you that I went to for this story. And then we want to have, we will develop graphics to show in, in lay terms how the drug will will work on the body to be able to explain that to an audience. And if we have time, we want to do some man on the street, or in this case, woman on the street, because this drug was being marketed to women, interviews, just to, again, add one more element to sort of engage 
the audience into this story and not just be showing shots of pills on a conveyor belt, which we often show in a lot of drug stories, obviously. Taking all those elements, putting them together, usually takes about eight hours. <laughs> Creating a script which tells the story from most important to least important, so beginning with the news that the FDA is about to prove this drug, sort of setting up the pros and cons of this drug, and then maybe ending with some woman-on-the-street interviews of what they think about this drug and its side effects would be how we tell the story from top to bottom. It's remarkable that it can be done at all and come together in a coherent story in such a short period of time, especially when you're balancing the inputs from various sources. And al almost no matter what the topic is, there are people that believe for it and people that Absolutely. are against it. And deciding who's credible and who's not must be a difficult task. Well, one of the first things, obviously, is we have to see are, is is the academic that we want to talk to sitting on the board of another drug company, or is he on the drug on the board of the drug company that is producing this drug? Does he have some sort of connection or any sort of interest that that might impede his ability to give or her ability to really give us a, an accurate survey of what what this drug means? Right. Um, the word pitch comes up a lot in this context, and uh, producers talk about being pitched, and that means people are coming to them with ideas for stories. And I can't imagine how many of those you get per day, but you know, press releases and publicists for companies and all those sort of things are probably happening in a continual stream. Um, do you feel barraged by it, and how do you sort through it and decide what's a keeper idea and what's not? It depends on the day, obviously. I mean, we're, there are many, many pitches that you just read the first sentence of and, and you just know it's not going to be something that you want to do for the show. And it's not an exact science. But I think if there is if there's something that's going to have national appeal, affect a lot of people, then then that is something we want to tell the story of. I think uh, there are a lot of things that the FDA approves or doesn't approve that, that don't ever see the light of day when it comes to broadcast television. But we know how big the diet industry is, how much money is around it, and how many people are going to look to this drug as something to solve a problem. So when that comes through, um, and that wasn't pitched to us, that was something we saw you know, on the FDA calendar that jumped out at us, that, that sort of story is going to be something that we know we want to, we want to tell. I may be forcing an artificial distinction here, but you're balancing entertainment with information. How do those two things come together, and how do you decide the relative you know, weight of those two things as you're putting something together? I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily choose the word entertainment because of the connotations it has mm -hmm. with it. We think of Inside Edition and Entertainment Tonight and The Insider and those sorts of shows. Okay. We want to make uh, a news story engaging. And often the way that is done is by putting faces to the story, having a, a family that is affected by something, a, a man or woman who is affected by the story at hand, really sort of bringing a story to life instead of making it a plain news story, having engaging video, engaging characters to be able to tell that story for us a little bit. So it's not entertainment in the terms of making something flashy and exciting and compromising accuracy in any way. But we do want to make a story engaging. Mm -hmm. So you have to capture people's interests or else the information will be lost. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Some scientists I know, and we all know some of these folks, are reluctant to interact with the press. And they complain about being misquoted or that stories are dumbed down and there are complicated issues. They get put forward in simplistic ways. Um, what would be your response to people like that who are reluctant to interact with the media? I can understand that completely because television news is often not able to be as, as nuanced as a 20-year study. We might have a minute 30 
to tell a story. And it doesn't mean we want to dumb something down, but we do want to distill it and see what rises to the surface. What is the most important thing about this study that we need to be able to say? So I believe a lot of people, and again, I understand a reluctance to talk to the press, but then it becomes a question of is this study in, in the public eye or not? And I think while a good journalist would never want to misquote or take a quote out of context to make someone look bad, it, I'm sure it might, it might be something that happens. If someone is burned once, by that kind of experience, I could understand them never wanting to talk to the press again. But by the, nat the nature of what journalists do and the nature of what researchers do is, is very different. But we're trying to, I think, we're trying to distill what, what is the one issue that really rises to the top that we want to talk about. You know, if I might editorialize for a minute, I think in my own experience, the, the press get it wrong once in a while, but get it right almost all the time which is remarkable to me. I mean, yes, it's their job, and yes, they're trained to do this, and yes, they do it every day. But if you think that one day they're writing about an earthquake and the next day a new drug that's being approved, and after that some new disease that's being spread in Africa or something, and the fact that they have so little time to get on top of it, it's remarkable to me that they get it right at all. But they do almost all the time, as I said in my experience. We try. We really, really try. And I think we rely not only on our own research to try to to try to get to the heart of an issue and understand the context as much as possible before we interview anyone. But we do rely on a lot of experts that we may not interview on camera that can can give us a little more information, can flush something out. We do rely on them, even just on background information, whether it's on vetting other experts or trying to get to the heart of a story or just to better understand something. Let me ask you about the shelf life of an issue. <clears throat> In the health area, Everybody who's dealing with an issue thinks their issue is important and always will be. But things come and go in the press, and things that get a lot of attention one day, like AIDS, which was getting no attention and then got a lot of attention, and now it's sort of faded out of the picture again. Not entirely, but it's not nearly the news story that it used to be. That, that applies to almost everything. And if I think in our own area of nutrition and obesity, we have to think of ways we can prevent that because we want to keep the issue alive, keep people paying attention to it so you can get change in laws and change in the environment and change in things that might really help push things in a positive direction. What do you think explains the shelf life of a story? I mean, what are the factors that make a story hot at one moment and then not so hot later? And are there any things that we might think about as a field to keep a story in the limelight? Well, I think obviously something that's happening that day or the next day, and sometimes that involves studies, but often different news will usurp a study. If, there, if we are at war, if, if there is a natural disaster, if there's a presidential election happening, there are new things happening every day and the next day. That, that's the news. It's new. I think when an issue might lose its legs, there, there's often something new about the story we, we don't know. For example, we were talking about childhood obesity. There may be new numbers about childhood obesity. We, we realized, you know, today, the news of the day, this is a much bigger issue than we thought it was. And then that might die down. There are, there are new parts of that issue that might, that might be able to come up. For example, a month later, that might be a type 2 diabetes story. And a couple months after that, there may be a, a celebrity with a child with an eating disorder. This comes back, this issue comes back in a new way. There may be a film that discusses this issue. So there are, there are new ways that, that we can sort of bring up different issues 
in, in a story. So you come up with a new twist, you come up with a new group of people that's affected, a new human angle on the story or things like that. Then it becomes new and then it's news. Can keep it going. I have a question about conflicts of interest. Um, in, in our field, and I know this is true of really every area of science for the most part, where there's an industry where money can be made, like a company can sell a drug or a company stands to lose, like the food industry might lose if you, for example, find that soft drinks are related to bad health or things, then money starts to flow between those industry people and the scientific world. And people get paid to be on advisory boards. They get money from the industry to do their science and things like this. But, of course, then the industry wants these people to show up in the media to say nice things about their product or their drug. So how do you deal with that? How do you think through those issues of conflicts of interest? And I know in my, my own experience, it seems like there's more uh, sensitivity to the issue in the press than there used to be. Before, people wouldn't ask about it at all. And now people will, not quite routinely, but it's getting more routine, will ask me if I'm, being if I'm commenting on a drug or a product. Are you on a board or do you get money from the company? And I think that's a very positive development. But I'm wondering what your take on that is. And, and we have to not only ask you, but... That assumes we would take your word for it. We would have to also really, really check out. I think that that's even more important than asking someone because someone could say, oh, I'm not really on a board, and then it turns out th they might not even be trying to deceive. They might not consider the Pepsi health board for, you know, whatever, to be, can, to be Pepsi mm -hmm. because it does things that are completely unrelated to Pepsi. And I think also so many corporations are, uh, have, have hands in different aspects that may have nothing to do with their their organization, that, that it's often, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough line. I think the most important thing as journalists is to reveal that. And if there is someone that we need to talk to, or if there's a study that's been done that has a connection to a drug company or another corporation, it's, it's very, very important to put it in that context. And that's just good journalism. Well, let me challenge you on that a bit, because if a person is going to be biased by virtue of taking money from industry, and there's pretty good science showing that that's going to be the case, then and you put them on, but then you say, well, they're getting money from the industry, then what that assumes is that the viewer or the listener or the reader, in the case of the print media, will discount what that person is saying sufficient to, to compensate for the fact that they're issuing bias statements to begin with. Do you think that's really the case? Do you think that qualifying that person's credentials by saying that they're on a drug company board or something undoes the damage created by the bias that they may have? I don't know, but I think the other way to handle that is to find if there are numbers that don't jibe at all with what they're saying that are coming from a non-drug company source. I think we used, we talked about if um, there's a new study that soda prevents osteoporosis, and that might make some red flags go up in a journalist's head. So you might interview the author of that study, who might be connected somehow and probably is a soda company. And so then you also say in that same story, they they might they work for this, they're, they're connected to the soda company. But also there's two other studies that say the exact opposite that aren't connected with soda companies. And you can kind of pit those those two studies against each other and, and let the truth reveal itself from there. It's interesting to me that all, um, I don't want to keep talking so much about the conflict of interest thing, but it's a very interesting issue and it comes through a lot in the way people interact with the media. But every human being has a blind spot and, and I know 
one big blind spot that keeps the advertisers in business is the belief that almost everybody has that I'm not affected by advertising, but of course every other human in the country is. And scientists have a similar blind spot with this conflict of interest. People take money and believe that they can remain objective, that they retain their scientific integrity, and what they say is completely unbiased. Oh, yes, but it might affect my fellow scientists. It's very <laughs> interesting course. how that works, and it's a big problem. And I think you see, you know, there's, there's, there are conflicts of interest, I think, everywhere and in every field. And it really is, in a way now, for better or for worse, part of the fabric of, of so many fields, because that's where a lot of the money is. That's right. That's right. So tell me how you think people who are professionals, health professionals of one sort or another, or scientists in particular, can be most helpful to people who do the work you do? I think because so many health professionals obviously are working from uh, breadth and depth of knowledge that we do not have the time or luxury to have, that that can really be an amazing asset to, to journalists. You are experts in your fields, so you are able to tell us what's going on and what studies are happening, what new research is showing. The other thing, as I mentioned before, is we really try to put a face to every story. So if it were a story about type 2 diabetes. And if there were something new we could say about that. And if there's also a family or a child or someone who can really bring that story to life, then that's riveting. And, and that's the kind of story we want to tell. So I think if, if you're in the field and, and doing that, you would, you would know who those people are, what these numbers are, and, and be able to help with that part of it. I've often wondered along that line about whether it would ever be helpful for scientists to gather together and to talk to the press about what the stories in the making are. Like, what's going to be the story that's going to happen in the next six months? We're doing this study. We don't really know what the outcome of it's going to be, but we know we're doing it. And to give the, the press a heads up on things that are in the wind. Um, and I don't know how far ahead people think about these stories or whether that would be helpful or not, but it occurred to me it would be a very nice way for the professional community to interact with the press. Absolutely, and that would be an asset to us because then we could actually prepare better and and if we knew what was what was coming and if it was something we knew we were interested in we could really start to gather the elements and and we would have more time to do our homework to be as thorough as possible that sounds very good well thank you so much it's, thank you. it's been an absolute delight having you here it's been a pleasure having Cole Kasdan join us today from ABC News and from Good Morning America in particular. And as I mentioned when we began this netcast, uh, you can come to the Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter.org and listen to uh, netcast on a number of topics. Thank you very much, and Thank I look you. forward to next time.